Well, a number of years ago, I was traveling uh, alone to Oregon for a family reunion. Uh, I was driving from my parents' house where I was living at the time. It was a reunion that we've had every year since um, I was a toddler. So it was a, a, a trip I was familiar with, but at, at this uh, particular trip, I take a, took a different route than what I was familiar with because I was meeting him in a place that was different than usual, the usual route we take. So I broke off uh, the five and started heading through uh, western Oregon. It's a beautiful drive. It, it's green. It's, it's in a rural area. There's, there's tons of forests that you're driving through, meadows. It's just so picturesque, and I was really enjoying it. I enjoy traveling by myself. I enjoyed long drives, so it was, it was just perfect for me until I was disturbed when I looked at my gas gauge and found that it was empty. The light was on and the dial was all the way down. Now the problem was I couldn't remember the last time I looked at it. I don't know how long it had been since it had been empty. So it could have been five minutes, it could have been an hour. So of course my response was just frustration and, and fear and anxiety. I was rounding every turn waiting for that gas station, but I was in a rural area. I had no idea really where I was. At the time, I didn't have a smartphone, and the phone that I had was a flip phone, and it was dead, and the signal was bad anyway. So I was, I was imagining myself just in this, this difficult situation. I started getting anxious and tense and fearful instead of just just riding it out and being calm and, and waiting uh, for, for um, God to provide. Now I'm here, uh, you know, everything <laughs> ended up being okay. I got gas and, and everything was fine. But I thought about that because here we see a man who's traveling in an area. It's totally unknown. It's foreign to him. There's all sorts of things that could go wrong. And so he's afraid. He starts to fear his, his scenario and situation. His vision becomes clouded, and it leads him to do things and, and depend on other things other than the Lord. And as we've been talking about over these last several weeks about the fear and anxiety that we feel when our situations go south, when things become unknown, when all the worst-case scenarios start rattling through our mind, our vision becomes clouded, and instead of trusting and looking to the Lord, we can start depending and resting and, and clinging to other things for safety, for satisfaction, for fulfillment, for security. That's what we see Abraham do. And so what do we do with that? When you and I, when we look at our own lives, we have to admit there's been times we've done that. that we've depended on other things other than the Lord for salvation a real sense of security and safety. What do we do with that? But also, there's another side to this, because you and I, as, as you and I are sinners, and there's the effects of that, also, we've experienced the sin of other people. We've experienced the hurt of those who are, who are afraid and anxious and, and trying to seek some sort of control or safety. And we feel the weight of that. What do we do with that? All the pain and, and heartache and this pain we feel because of that. What do we do? Here we see that because God is faithful in keeping his promises, we should face the adversities of life with confidence that he will preserve us until the end. Because God is faithful in keeping his promises, we should face the adversities of life with confidence 
that he will preserve us until the end. And there's three things I want to look at. First is the problem. Second is the punishment. And third is the payment. So first, what's the problem? Well, I want to give a little bit of a context since we are jumping in into a, a large uh, narrative. So Abraham has been traveling into a foreign land. He's been taken from his hometown Ur and him and his wife Sarah are now in a land they're unfamiliar with. And God has promised them already that he's going to make uh, Abraham into a great nation. He's given him uh, what we call the covenant of grace, uh, making, promising him to, to bless him and his offspring and ultimately to bring salvation through uh, Jesus, through the Messiah. And so Abraham is, is walking in faith and in trust in the Lord, and we've seen him act in such a way, but here is a place where we see Abraham fall and stumble because of fear. So the story begins, and right out the gate, Abraham lies. He lies about Sarah being his sister, which isn't true, as we, we know. Now, it's more than simply the fact that Abraham lied. If we just focused on, you know, Abraham lied and we shouldn't do that, that's only half the story. We need to look at what's below the surface in Abraham's lie. Because it's true, lying is wrong. In fact, if we continue in the narrative, God puts that in the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It's, it's a serious thing against the Lord. But we have to look at why. Why did Abraham lie? What caused him to do this? Well, let's first think about Abraham's situation. You know, he's in a foreign land. He's been taken from his hometown. It's totally unfamiliar. It's dangerous. You know, he doesn't know the situations he's going into. These are, these are foreign people raised, uh, and, and ruled by, by foreign kings. He's aware that God has promised him a son, that through him a son is going to come. He's, he's aware that if his life is at stake or if he is out of the picture, how is God going to keep his promise? So he puts the pressure on himself. He thinks, I need to do something in order for this promise to become true. He, he's afraid and anxious, and so he takes it into his own power. So we can understand some of his, his situation and his scenario, but we also need to understand and look at the fact that it's not as though God has totally abandoned Abraham at this point. In fact, God's already met with him three different times, reminding him of his promise to him, reminding him of his love for Abraham, reminding Abraham that he is special to God, that God loves him and cares for him three separate times and in more detail as God meets with him. He's also seen God's power at work, one in his victory in rescuing his nephew Lot. If you looked at Genesis 14, Lot is captured by one of the kings of of Sodom, and so Abraham goes out after him and is, is faced with really an impossible scenario. He's, he's, he's um, at odds against three kings, and yet God gives him the victory. And then just before this, in chapter 19, he sees the Lord destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. So Abraham has seen God work, and he's received God's love at various points in his walk. 
but he's afraid. He's afraid, and so instead of trusting in the Lord, he trusts in other things that God has given him. And in this case, it's his wife, it's Sarah. You know, and we see that when Abraham is recounting the story to Abimelech. He's giving him more detail about what happened. And he, he tells him what he told his wife, Sarah. And in verse 13, this is what it says. He says, him speaking to Sarah, this is the kindness that you must do to me. Now, the word kindness there is one that some of us have heard uh, before. It's, it's the Hebrew word hesed which could be used to talk about just familial love, just love between two people. But in Scripture, it's often used to talk about God's love, God's love for his people, the deep, unconditional love that God had for his people. So what Abraham is doing is he's turning to his wife and he's saying, you know, God, he's, he's doubting if God can show him that kind of love and he's depending on his wife to show him that kindness. It's up to you. This is the kindness. If you really love me, this is what you can do for me to save me, to protect me, to keep me from danger. He's trying to take control of the situation. I can imagine him in his tent figuring out, you know, what can I do? You know, we're walking through this, this really scary, difficult situation. And he's, I know. He comes up with this. And in his mind, it's, it's rational. It's, it's a good idea. But not only does, does he lie, but in doing that, he's, he's telling his wife to lie. He's actually putting her in a very vulnerable spot. And now she's guilty of telling a lie. But not only that, she's put in a, in a very exposed place because Abraham knows full well what could happen to her. Abraham knows what the outcome could be, that he's giving his wife over to a man and at that time, even in pagan cultures, adultery was heinous. Even pagan cultures saw that as wrong. And if we look and continue in, in Exodus and Leviticus, when God makes it into law, when people commit adultery, they were to be killed. So this was a serious thing against the Lord, and Abraham knows that. So he's putting his wife, who other than what Abimelech says, she has no voice. She's only mentioned by name. So is her husband who's supposed to lead, to protect, to guide, to exemplify what faith looks like, is failing. He fails as a husband. He fails as a follower of God. And also as an example. I mean, now Abimelech is on the chopping block. He puts Abimelech in an awkward and uncomfortable position through his sin. As he's supposed to be an example what it looks like to be a follower of God. Here he is, putting a pagan king at odds with the Lord. You know, lifeguards will tell you that when someone is drowning, they get so panic-stricken that the rationale just goes out the window and they'll cling to anything and anyone to stay afloat, even if it's a loved one. And so lifeguards, if they're approaching someone who's drowning, they have to be very careful because they could be the ones they latch on to. And this is what we see Abraham doing in his fear and panic and anxiety. He just he wraps his arms around his wife and hope that she'll keep him afloat. And the sad thing is, is both of them start sinking. 
Now we've put Abraham in a spotlight, as the text does, but we also have to understand and look at our own lives and our own sins. Because how often have we taken our eyes off of God and depending on other things for, for salvation, for security, when life gets scary, when our future is unknown or it's blurry. All the worst case scenarios sound like very likely options. We want a sense of security and safety. So we put our money, our trust in money and our career and hoping that that will keep us safe and secure. We put our trust in our spouses or our friends to give us a sense of belonging, of being wanted, being safe, or insurance companies to be there for us if things go wrong. We put our trust in government or we depend our own, on our own strength when it comes to fighting sin, the struggles that you and I face. We trust in ourselves to deliver us. But the result in that is often if we, and, and those things aren't bad things. Those are things that God has given us to, to support and to help us. But it's when we look at those things for the ultimate security, for the ultimate deliverance. And when we do that, the result is more hurt, is more anxiety, it's more fear, it's more shame. Because money runs out. We lose our career at times. Our spouses are as sinful as we are. Insurance companies have fine print. Our government is made up of sinful people who do corrupt things. And the cycle continues. And sometimes, instead of turning the Lord, even in those situations, we continue to look and seek for things to save us. This happens when we feel like God is distant. You know, if God doesn't care, at least this person does. If God doesn't want me, then at least this image does. If God doesn't make me feel safe, then at least I'm secure with this. We could fill in the blank with all kinds of things. But then there's the other side to this, is the effect that we feel of other people's sins. The effect that we feel and the, the pain that we feel when we've been sinned against. And all of us have experienced that to some degree. Whether it's extreme, some of us are carrying burdens and memories that are just unspeakable of what's happened. The things people have done and said, you still have the voice in your head what your spouse said, what your father told you, or your mother, or your coworker, or your boss, or the things that were done to you because of someone trying to seek control and power. So what do you do? Now what? Well, let's look at the punishment that we see in this text. There's two court trials that we see happening. There's the one trial where Abimelech is on the chopping block. It's, Abimelech is charged by God. And then the next one is when Abimelech charges Abraham. So first, God appears to Abimelech. And he charges him not with adultery. The text is clear that Abraham, or, um, Abimelech did not commit adultery, but he charges him with the fact that now he has a, man, he has a woman that doesn't belong to him, 
This is a married woman. So the charge is you, you have a woman who is not your wife. In fact, she's another man's wife. And Abimelech's defense is, as we understand and, and can sympathize, is ignorance. I mean, Lord, I'm going off of what has been told to me. In verse 4 and 5, he, he defends himself by, by pleading his ignorance, and actually, God validates that. He says, it's true that you've acted with the integrity of your heart, but still he charges them with what is true, that he has a woman that doesn't belong to him. And so the verdict, if Abimelech continues in this, is death. The punishment is death, and he's already experiencing some of that in the sickness and the barrenness of his family. But what's interesting is the integrity of Abimelech that's highlighted here. I mean, not only had he not approached her, but he's also concerned about not just himself, but his family. He's concerned about his kingdom. He's coming to the Lord with, with real concerns, where he's not just considering himself. So then Abimelech, who has this punishment, this weight over him, comes to Abraham. And he says, what have you done to us? Or in other words, what gives, bro? Like, I mean, come on, man. Twice he, he asks him, why, why have you done this? this? This sin that you've done against me that not only puts me in jeopardy, but also my entire kingdom. What, what did I do to you? So he charges Abraham with this sin. But what's almost shocking is Abraham's response. Is he, his defense is he excuses himself. He defends his actions. He does three things. He does One, he, he misjudges Abimelech and his family. The second thing he does is he justifies his lie. And the third thing he does is that he blames God for what happened. So first, he, he misjudges uh, Abimelech. You know, when I was in college, uh, this was what my sophomore year of college, we were uh, welcoming in the new uh, incoming class. I lived in a dorm, so I was introducing myself to some of the students. And I came up to this one guy and introduced myself, and he was just sort of like, hey, man, what's up? And, you know, just did his own thing. And I was offended by that. You know, he didn't take a moment to really, like, you know, give, give some more sort of attention. So in my mind, I was like, you know what? We're not going to be friends. This guy, you know, I just, I had all these things in my mind of, of who he is. You know, have you ever done that before where just one thing happens and you, like, you feel like you know that entire person's story? You know, you have everything about them just, just in front of you and you just throw it out. That's exactly what I did. And what was funny about that guy, he actually became a really good friend of mine. I mean, we roomed together for two years, and he stood at my wedding. So all this ass assumption that I had about him, just by the way he said hello, was totally wrong, which just couldn't be further from the truth. And that's what Abraham does. He assumes what's going to happen. He tells Abimelech in verse 11, he said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. But it's interesting, if you look back, just a couple verses back, let's look at verse 8, what really happens. 
says, so Abimelech, this is after he's heard from the Lord. He rose early. He can't even sleep. He can't even, he can't even wait to tell his servants. He, he rises early. He called his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. So Abraham says, there was no fear of God at all in this house. I mean, that's, that's emphatic. He's saying that there's absolutely no chance that you guys are going to fear the Lord. And what we see in the text is, is their response is terror, that they are very much afraid. And then he justifies his lie. He says, technically, she is my sister. You know, she's my half-sister. You know, let's, let's get the, the story straight, Abimelech. You know, you, you're saying I'm lying, but the reality is it's just a matter of interpretation. And then he blames the Lord. He says, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, what Abraham is saying in that verb, that caused me to wander. He's saying that, you know, I was hanging out in Ur, minding my own business, everything was fine, and God just snatched me out and threw me out in the wilderness in a place that I had no idea what was going to happen. I mean, give, cut me some slack here. <laughs> this is, you need to talk to the Lord about this. This is really his fault. And that's it. That's Abraham's response. We don't hear anything out of the mouth of Abraham for the rest of this experience. So how would we expect Abimelech to respond? Well, first we must look and understand. You know, friends, we are guilty of depending on, on other things, and Scripture is, doesn't really pull any punches to talk about where we were prior to Jesus. And we weren't even looking for him when Christ came. You know, we were enemies of God. We weren't even sorry when Jesus came to die. You know, but also there's, there's the cry for justice when we hear Abraham's response, who clearly is, is guilty. And we think of someone like Sarah and Abimelech. You know, how would you respond in hearing that kind of defense? And for that kind of pain, he's been dealt. And perhaps some of you are here and remembering what's been said to you and done to you. You're crying out for justice, for healing, for the pain that's been dealt. And then you're also looking at your own life and you see some of the things that you've said and done that have, that have hurt people around you and the shame and the guilt sets in. You know, how can we heal? How can we fix this problem? Well, how does Abimelech respond? You know, we might expect him to smack Abraham over the head and be like, are you, are you kidding me, <laughs> Or say, you know, if, if I see you on the street, bro, or say, you know, I don't ever want to see you again, those all would be perfectly understandable responses. But what does he do? It's shocking the way he responds. Is he gives Abimelech his stuff. He gives him servants and sheep and oxen, which 
is a picture of the, the abundance and provision that Abraham would have. The food that he would need, the provision, the support that he would need that would continue to provide. He gives him protection. He says, you can travel through my land in total safety. So here Abraham was afraid and wondering if his, if his life would, would pull, if he would pull through this. And here Abimelech is protecting him. But then, then he turns to Sarah. And he pays. He, he gives a thousand pieces of silver. And this is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you for everyone you are vindicating. What's he doing? You know, as we said, adultery was a heinous sin. And as far as we know and can see, who are, who are looking behind the scenes, the text is clear that Sarah didn't sin and Abimelech didn't commit adultery. But the people she's going back to don't know that. All they know is Sarah went to this man's house, went behind closed doors. We have no idea what happened. And so the stories and the accusations that could have risen up about her because of the sin of another man. And so what Abimelech is doing is he's showing the people she's pure. He's raising her dignity. He's raising her name back to where it was. She was innocent. He's restoring her in that payment. And another word for vindicated that is used here could be justified. That his payment justifies her. It vindicates her. It rids her of the shame, the accusations that be coming to her. And what does this mean for us? Here is a man, Abimelech, carries the burden and makes the payment for another man's sin. And that's what Jesus has done, friends, for us. That's what Christ came to do. What Scripture talks about in Hebrews chapter 6, it talks about Jesus entering into the presence behind the veil. What that's referring to is when the priests in the Old Testament would come into the temple, there was this intersection called the Holy of Holies that only the high priest can go into. And when, on the Day of Atonement, it was once here, he would enter in and offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. What that room was, was God's courtroom, where the charge was the sin against him that his people had committed. And the, the verdict was placed on the animal. The verdict was placed on the sacrifice. What Hebrews talks about is Jesus has come in. And he's the one that's taken the verdict. He's the one that's taken the punishment. And he's paid for our sins. That he's paid for all the things that you and I have done. And what that means for us, friends, is no matter how much you and I have blown it, no matter how much damage you and I have caused, and the anxiety and fear that leads us to run after other things for salvation, that Jesus has paid for that, that Jesus has forgiven you for that. 
that Jesus has made the full payment for that sin. And there's nothing that you and I need to do to fix ourselves, to pull ourselves up from our own bootstraps, to try to reverse the damage that was done. Jesus has paid for that. But not only that, but as Abimelech came to Sarah and raised her dignity, that the stories and the things that have been done to you and said to you, God cares about. The things that you've told no one about but still keep you up at night, God cares for that. And even now in him, you are being healed and purified. And what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might be holy and without blemish. That's what Jesus is going to do for you. We're carrying the pain and the burden of what's been done. And you're just crying out for healing. That Jesus is going to come and present you totally pure and without spot or wrinkle. And he's beginning that process now. That he cares about your story. That he cares about what's been done to you. And he cares about you so much that he would come and reverse the curse, the pain that you've caused and also the pain that's been caused to you. So now, as we trust in the Lord to be faithful to keep his promise because he kept his promise to both Abraham and Sarah, that he was faithful to both of them, Abraham in his sin and Sarah in her shame, that God will be faithful to you to keep his promise to you no matter how much you and I continue to trust in other things God will be faithful to you and so as we go out through this week we trust in the Lord when we face adversity we trust in God to be faithful and care for us and bring us through until the end amen let's pray Father, we come to you broken, come to you knowing, Lord, that we have trusted in other things, and some of those things have caused damage to other people, but we thank you, Lord, that not only have you forgiven us and saved us, that, Lord, you are also restoring and redeeming and raising up all of us, no matter what we've experienced, no matter what we've done, that your death and resurrection, Jesus, reverses the curse. So we pray that you would, by your spirit, work on our hearts to continue to trust you this week as we wait for your return to fully deliver us and make us pure and without wrinkle. Until then, Lord, be with us in Christ's name. Amen.